The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray together. So God, we do need you now. You've given us your Holy Spirit and we need we need him to open the eyes of our hearts to see what he's written to us uh, through Luke. And we, we want to see it because we want to see you. We want to see who you are and what you've done. We want to change. We want to become more like Jesus. We want to walk in obedience and all that comes from the Spirit. But we come with great expectation because you have promised to never leave us or forsake us, including this moment. You've promised to do more than we can ask or even think by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. So we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to come and make much of Jesus in this moment. And we ask for it again for another Sunday of seeing. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We continue on this journey through... Acts, and what you're going to find is that the narrative expands and it really picks up in pace. And so we're going to start to pick up in pace with it because what I want is for you to not only hear the words, but I want you to feel the momentum. And and in this one, what what we're going to see is that while this massive momentum, while this pace picks up, what, what Luke is not going to let us kind of get past or around it is two really important things. Number one, that God is behind all of this by the power of the Holy Spirit. Over and over again, God and the power of the Holy Spirit proclaiming Jesus is the main actor in the story. Number two, the way that that happens, the means that the Holy Spirit's going to use time and time again to conquer enemies and make disciples is the Word of God. We're meant to see the the Holy Spirit and the Word of God marching, spreading, conquering enemies and making them friends, making them family. So I was thinking of an analogy for what this text is supposed to do. And I'll start with a question. Do any of you have really big old trees in your yard? Like the kind you just look up and when you were little, right, they seemed like they went all the way to the sky. Well, underneath really big trees are really deep, long roots. And those really deep roots make that really big tree really sturdy and really strong. So if you've ever been in your yard, like we have the last couple of years, and trying to do landscaping and trying to dig and find things, every once in a while, you'll, you'll hit one of those big, strong roots. And my kids will laugh at me, right, because I will be there for a half an hour just chopping, right? Just to try to move like this much of it just out of the way so we can just do that little thing. Like I just want to put that thing there. And it takes me a half an hour of just chopping, continually sweating to get that little root to move. That's one example. We also have some flowers a neighbor planted for us around our mailbox across the street, even planted irises for us to name them after our daughter. And she planted them just a few days ago, and I was over there talking to her the other night. And my daughter Quinn walked up, full of life and joy and mischief. She's two. And she walked up to the mailbox and just pulled a flower right out of the ground. 
in front of the neighbor who planted them for us. And I'm like, put it back, you know, like, don't do that. And the neighbor was great, of course. The point is, those roots weren't as deep. And therefore, my two-year-old could just rip it out of the ground without much effort at all. And in our passage today, we're going to see that God means for us to have roots that go deep in His Word, deep in the history of His promises, and therefore joy that is sturdy and strong. Pastor David's prayer was just right. We want you to have this this unshakable joy to not leave here feeling like you're on fumes, not probably because in the next 40 minutes or whatever your circumstances change, but because your heart is reminded how deep are the promises of God. He doesn't want us to have shallow roots that we can easily be pulled out by a two-year-old, plucked by two-year-old temptations and two-year-old tribulations. He doesn't want us to be rooted in anything else. Rather, he wants us to know that he's a God who has always kept his word, has always fulfilled it in Jesus, and that we can trust that our salvation is secure and he's working for our freedom and joy in Jesus. In fact, I would say one of the, the rising burdens of your elders here at the South Campus is that we would be a people with deep roots in God's word and therefore sturdy, solid joy. He doesn't right, want us to just kind of be able to be tossed to and fro. In fact, this is one of the things that's even driving something that we're starting in the fall called Truth on Fire, a kind of training center in the Word, because we want women and men that are deeply rooted in the Word of God that's been fulfilled in Jesus. Like, he's given us a pretty big book. He's given us a lot of promise. He's given us a lot to look at. Like, we could never unpack it if we spent the rest of our lives on it, and we want you to be rooted in it, not just no facts, but have it be the thing that holds your soul in the storms of life and spreads and flourishes over time. Our comforts, and we're very comfortable here in America, right? We've got an awesome building. I love this building. It serves us so well. I love our house. Our house serves us well for our family, but we have these comforts, right? We, we, have, we have health, generally, We have jobs and families and finances and all those things are gifts from God. Good gifts from God. Drink it in. Enjoy them to the full. But if that's where we're rooted, we can be easily pulled out, right, by one scary phone call. We're all just one scary phone call away from being undone. Or a turn of the stock market. Or a bad performance review. Or a loss of someone we love, or a culture that increasingly dismisses Jesus. And what happens when those are our roots of joy? Well, we become workaholics. <laughs> we, we live in fear of the next bad thing. We grow angry and anxious and undone as we hear the news and we hear of the suffering around us. And I don't want us to be of people that has to go up and down in our joy based on the up and down of our circumstances. This passage today shows us that we can be rooted in an all-powerful God who has kept His promises for a long time. 
and all redemptive history and fulfilled them in Jesus. And if we are rooted in his word and in his promises that all find their yes in Jesus, the point of this text is that we can be filled with joy and the Holy Spirit and go about rejoicing no matter the circumstances. So let's dive in here to our text. We start in verses 13 to 25. Point number one is the redemption of Israel as the fulfillment of God's word. So let's just remember where we're at in the story. The last few weeks, we've really seen the sending base for all of Christianity move from Jerusalem and the Jews to this city called Antioch, right? We've seen kind of the, the base of missions move. And last week, we saw the church in Antioch gather to fast and pray and worship, and we saw the sovereign spirit set apart Saul, who's now Paul in our story, and Barnabas for this new missionary work. And, and Luke's just going to keep putting this in front of us to remind us and keep saying they were filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did this so that we know who's in charge and who's working and so that we remember God's keeping his promise. Acts 1.8. Right, I will give my people the Holy Spirit and they will be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And so we pick up here in verses 13 to 14 and we see that now they've actually been sent off by boat and they end up in a place called Antioch of Pisidia, which was probably about a 215-mile journey overall with a couple stops along the way. Antioch of Pisidia was a province of Galatia. And so one of the things to start doing now as we're doing these missionary journeys is to do a little digging during the week, and I'll try to point it out in the sermons, and go, what, what letter was Paul writing when we're hearing this sermon? What, what letter, what epistle was he writing as he was in this place? And so this sermon we're going to see from Paul, you can begin to see glimpses of what he'll write in his letter to the church of Galatia. Freedom in Christ, fulfillment of the law in Christ. You could never be freed by the law. Things like that that will show up in Galatians. And what you find as you study history is that there were many Jews who had migrated and were now living in this region. This was probably a pretty big synagogue. In verses 15 to 16, what we'll see is they go through the normal synagogue order of worship. There's a reading from the law and prophets, and then they invite Paul, who would have been kind of an honored guest, to give a word of encouragement. And in verses 17 to 25, what Paul gives is a kind of national history of the faithfulness of God. And in this sermon, in verses 18 to 25, God takes center stage. He is the main actor of every verb as he works redemption among the people of Israel throughout their history. So that's what's coming. Now kids, I don't know if you're like me when I was little, but have your parents ever told you about how they grew up or where they grew up and all the places they lived and all the things they did. And I remember, I, I have this memory, and I don't know exactly what it was, it must have been in the city my dad grew up in, of driving this car all around the city <laughs> and hearing all the stories. And I remember the main impression that I had as then my, my mom was adding to it and they were talking about when they were married and they were young and I was thinking the main, the main impression I had is no way that all happened, right? I was like eight. So I was like, you can't even do that much stuff. But now I do that with my kids, 
right? And the danger for them is they live a lot closer to where Kelly and I started than we live. So we do it like once a year. And we go and say, here's where we lived, and there's where we did that, and this is where you were born, and, right? And we get to do all that. So why, why do we do that? Well, there's something fitting about knowing where you came from and how you got there. There's something fitting about knowing your history. And Paul is going to show these people that they got there by the powerful word and promises of God fulfilled. So let's, let's dig in and see what he says in verses 17 to 25. In verse 17, he reminds them of the greatness of God's redemption as he pulls them out of Egypt, redeems them from this slavery they were in. In verse 18, he reminds them of God's great patience as he literally bears with them in the wilderness and all of their grumbling and complaining. In verse 19, he reminds them of God's hand to remove other nations and bring them into the promised land. In verse 20, he reminds them that he gave them judges and prophets to lead them once they were there. In verse 21, he reminds them that he even granted their request to give them kings to lead them, starting with Saul. And in verses 22 to 23, he takes them to King David, a man after God's own heart. And through the line of David came the ultimate king of kings, Lord of lords, who would sit on the throne forever as Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 24 to 25, he skips a thousand years of history and goes right from David to remind them of John the Baptist, this this prophet who even before Jesus came was saying, you have to repent. Why does he mention that line from John? Because they have to repent. He's saying, we've been saying it before Jesus came. You have to repent. God redeemed this people. He bore with you. He led you. He's brought you here. He sent you prophets. He's called you to repent. And the one, the greatest man ever born of woman, that's what John the Baptist is called, even he says he's not worthy to untie the sandal of this one, Jesus Christ the fulfillment of all 1,800 years of this history of all the covenants of God to his people. So what's the point of these 1,800 years or so of history by Paul? What's he trying to tell them? What's the point of Bethlehem pausing to look back on our 150-year anniversary this year? Like, why, why do we do these things? To show that we got here by the faithfulness of God and to show that the culmination of all his promises to us are found in Jesus Christ, the person where our roots can go so deep that we can be sturdy in our joy, to show that it's not up to us. We aren't writing this story, Right? Like if Bethlehem is messy and hard, it's not up to us. We're not writing this story. God is writing this story. If he's been faithful for 1,800 years to the people of Israel, been faithful for 150 years to the people of Bethlehem, are we really worried, like bringing our hands, like what is God going to do? God's not worried. (laughs) God is not frustrated. God is not thwarted. God has not stopped even for 
a moment, not even a moment, in the biggest picture of redemptive history and in the smallest detail of your life, God is not thwarted, God is not stopped. Paul is calling them to see this, I think, as their history. And he's calling us to see this as our history. This is our history. He's calling them to see the whole story, all of history, not only in God's faithfulness, but he's saying, see all of that, all the stories you've heard your whole life. Like, they would have heard these stories over and over and over again. He's saying, all of that, see it all in light of this one person, Jesus Christ, come to him now. It's the call of this sermon. He's calling them to see that God sustained them and kept his promises to them in all of their circumstances, in all of their history, and that all of that was going to always be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, their waited for Messiah. He's saying God has been writing a story that has culminated in the personal work of Jesus, and I'm inviting you to see it and to trust him. That's what all of it's about. If you're here today, and maybe you are just a kid, or you're here today and you haven't yet seen that all of life, all of history, everything is about Jesus, I want to invite you to see him today and trust him. Whatever your heart has thought it has been longing for, as you look back on the story of your life and you see some good moments and some shameful moments, the shameful moments you can't shake, the good moments, they're gone too fast, what your heart is longing for is Jesus That's the story that's being written throughout all of history. This can become your history, your story, right now. You can enter into this and no longer be a bystander wondering what is life all about. It's about Him. Nothing has happened in life by accident. God has been working and weaving His story throughout all of history, including the last 150 years of Bethlehem, including today, to save and sustain a people, maybe to save someone in this room or listening online right now to see Jesus as He is, as the culmination, the center, the fulfillment of everything. That's what Paul wants them to see. Point number two rejection by Israel as fulfillment of God's word. We saw redemption. Now we see rejection. So Paul again addresses the people of Israel and those who fear God in verse 26 and says, this message of salvation in Jesus has been sent to you right now. He's bringing urgency to the moment. This isn't far off. It's not in the past. It's not coming in the future. It's, it's right now. He's saying, hear me now. This is available now. Then he says, verse 27, that those in Jerusalem, the center of the religion, these people are devoted to, their leaders, their rulers, missed the Messiah. And then he says, and this would have been like a scary mic drop moment if you're the speaker. He says, and they don't understand the prophets. Your rulers, your scribes, your authorities, the one who set this whole thing up, the one who you're so devoted to, what I'm saying is they don't understand what they're reading. They don't understand what they're teaching you. Which means, what about these people? They don't understand either. (laughs) That's the implication. This would have been stinging and very unsettling. And I think that's on purpose. Paul means to unsettle them from their earthly religion and hope so that they can be 
reoriented to see Jesus as their eternal hope. This is what God does by his word. <laughs> Might not be from the Jewish customs and religions, but isn't this how he's worked in so many of our stories? He unsettles us. He unearths all that we're hoping in, all that we've trusted in, so that only Jesus is left. This is what he does. He unsettles and it stings and it hurts. It hurts the first time a little bit when we come to conversion. We have to die to ourselves even though there's great joy. And it hurts every time after that as we see our idols. We have to turn in repentance to Jesus. So he's trying to unsettle them. And in verses 28 to 29, he lays out a little bit different part of the history of the nation. This time their recent history of rejecting their Messiah. He says, yeah, your, your teachers, your authorities, your rulers, they don't understand the prophets they read, but they do fulfill them. He says they actually fulfilled the prophets that they didn't understand when they condemned Jesus. They asked Pilate to crucify him even though they found no guilt in him. You see how he's building a case against them that built the case against Jesus. What guilt did they find in him? Oh, none. What did they do? Crucified him. Your rulers don't get it. Not only do they not understand what they're reading, but they're crooked. Right? They're slanderous. They're deceptive. They didn't understand their own prophets, but they fulfilled them when they had Jesus murdered on a tree and laid in a tomb. What does he mean they fulfilled them? Well, certainly he's thinking of passages like Isaiah 53, where it says the coming Messiah would be pierced, afflicted, oppressed, struck down, crushed, killed, as an offering for guilt. Maybe he's thinking here because of his language about a tree and laying him down in a tomb. Maybe he's thinking of Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 to 23. Listen to what this says as a fulfillment in Christ. It says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall remain all night on the tree, but you shall, bury, shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged Man is cursed by God. They killed their Messiah. And in doing so, and this is so important, the reason I bring up Deuteronomy is because they thought, they thought in their self-deceit, in their murderous wanting of power, in their jealousy that we're going to see show up again in this passage, they thought, we're doing the right thing. We're killing him. He is cursed by God. He is a criminal. We can't quite do it ourselves. We can get Rome to do it for us. And what what Paul is saying here is, well, he was cursed by God on your behalf. They don't understand the prophets they're teaching you about even though they're fulfilling them. In killing their Messiah, God fulfills his promises to bring them forgiveness of their sins. In murdering their Messiah, God fulfilled his promises by putting the curse of their sins on him and brought them a king who would sit on the throne of David forever. Even their rejection shows God's faithfulness to his word fulfilled in Jesus. That's the point. Do you see his faithfulness in history? In his redemption of your people? Do you see his faithfulness in history in the rejection of him by your people? Paul is trying to show them and invite them to trust not in their faulty religious system, their crooked 
rulers, but in this crucified king who is their long-waited-for Messiah. God is working to fulfill his word and save his people, even in the midst of what looks like massive setback and failure. What could look like a bigger failure or like evil had one more than the crucifixion of the Son of God? If you're here today and watching at home, and you've been blind to who Jesus is and what he's done, there are others who have been blind before and had a lot more knowledge than you. What do you do with your blindness? You trust him now. You turn from your sin now. You walk out of your shame now to Jesus. And if you're here today and you've trusted in Jesus but you've lost sight of God's faithfulness to you, maybe you're caught in rebellion, maybe you're caught in just apathy, remember the saving blood and sustaining spirit now. Remember your forgiveness now. Remember the joy of your salvation now. The good news of verses 26 to 29 in the midst of all sorts of ugliness is that the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus Christ are never thwarted or frustrated by the blindness, ignorance, or sinfulness of man. Never have been once never will be in the future. Point number three, the resurrection of Jesus as fulfillment of God's word. So in verses 30 to 37, Paul continues his sermon on this faithfulness of God to his word through the resurrection of Jesus. The good news for these Jewish people is that the crucified king, who their rulers murdered because they didn't understand but fulfilled, that king did not stay dead. God raised him up, it says. God raised him up and he appeared to people for many days to prove that he was alive. And then Paul just goes back and says, I'm just going to show you, your prophets don't understand, what they're, or your teachers don't understand the prophets they're reading, but I do, and I'm going to show you. And I used to be one of them. I, I used to be blind. I used to be ignorant. But the Holy Spirit came and opened my eyes. Now I see it all. It's all about him. I'm going to show you. And so he just goes to these texts. These three texts he chooses were part of like the daily readings that they would regularly do. So he's hitting them right where they're at and saying, don't, don't you see what it's about? Everything you've been reading and hearing and memorizing every day, it's all about him. So he goes to Psalm 2-7 in verse 33. Psalm 2 talks about the nations raging against God and God says in the midst of that, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. What's he saying to them in this moment? He's saying, Jesus is that son. He will judge the nations, including this one. He will have the nations as his inheritance, including the the Gentiles you're so eager to keep out. Blessed are all, not who keep the Torah perfectly like you ever could anyways. Blessed are all who take refuge in the son. In other words, the question for Israel and all the nations and us today is will we take refuge in the resurrected king by faith? Will we find our life and our hope and our rest and our joy and our security in the salvation offered to us in this death for sins and his resurrection to conquer death? Or Isaiah 55, 3, in verse 34 it's quoted, where the people are invited in this, in this passage in Isaiah to come so that their souls might live as he makes an everlasting covenant through the line of David. So where do we find 
those everlasting blessings? Where do we find, where do we go that our souls might live? Well, Paul's case is we go to Jesus. It says he's the keeper of the Davidic covenant. He's the king who sits on the throne. And the reason that these promises and our souls can live forever is that Jesus, the covenant keeper, didn't stay dead. And so today our hope and our souls and these promises are alive in him. And Paul says to these people, come, come. Or Psalm 16 10, right? This is a psalm that's a favorite at Bethlehem. It's quoted here in verses 35 to 37 that Paul says is talking about how Jesus, God's Holy One, will not see corruption. The psalm seems like it's talking about David at first, but then he goes on to make the case and says, well, David died. His body was corrupted, but not true with Jesus. And now for all those in Christ who trust Him, though our bodies waste away in this broken world now, anyone have pains? Anyone have brokenness? Anyone have corruption? Anyone feel that as you get a little bit older? Some of us feel it younger. There's disease and suffering that just ravages our broken bodies. He says for those in Christ, when we die, they will not see ultimate corruption. But there is a day coming when these broken bodies will be like his glorified body, not riddled by sin or by suffering so that we can fully enjoy him forever. In his presence, what's the verse after this? After 1610, you all know it. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the power of the resurrection. The point of all this, the resurrection of Jesus was not a surprise. Which means the death of Jesus was not a surprise but a fulfillment of God's word and promises, and he is showing them and inviting them to trust and have life in the living Christ. Kids, do you ever get afraid? My kids get afraid. Strangers, of uh, storms, of all sorts of scary things, right? The world is scary. What about you adults? Do you ever get afraid? (laughs) I do. Where does fear come from? Where does it come from? I think ultimately, all fear comes from death. So let me explain that to you a little bit. What does suffering do? Like we fear suffering. What is suffering really doing to us? Sometimes it hurts, it's painful. But what's it doing even to our minds and our hearts and our souls? Well, it's whispering death to us. The presence of suffering is is whispering, death is coming. Or the brokenness all around us in our families, in the world, what's it whispering to us? It's whispering death to us. In other words, the brokenness and the pain and the, the brokenness in our bodies, all of it is speaking to us and whispering to us that something is deeply broken and it's going to lead to death someday. Right, and it leads to all sorts of fear and anxiety. It leads to all sorts of marketing opportunities. I mean, we do more than any other nation ever to just pretend like we're not getting closer to death. Like, there's a whole industry for it. Like, go, I I thought about bringing the numbers, but billions and billions and billions of dollars to just pretend like we're not getting closer. So there's all sorts of fear and anxiety. It leads us to try to cling 
to the things of this life for our joy and fulfillment, right? We've got to squeeze as much out of every day because in the back of our minds we know life is fleeting. And then what do we do, right? We, we look back on life and realize we haven't done this well, we've failed in that way, and we live with these massive regrets about how we didn't use our time well and look back on years with wasted shame, right? Why? Because death has come. We feel like we've wasted it. We have deep frustration when things break and don't go as planned. Why? Because we're running out of time. It's precious. The fear of death is underneath all of our anxiety and angst. That's why in Hebrews 2, the author says, we freed you from the fear of death. That's what we've been freed from in Jesus. But here's what it means for those of us that trust in the Savior who hung on the cross to take the curse of our sins and rose again to conquer death. It means we can begin to walk in freedom from that fear, in freedom from that frustration by the power of the Holy Spirit because we know Jesus is alive. We know our time isn't actually running out. Our time isn't actually fleeting. We actually have forever left, right? Like, we get so frustrated. Like, man, I have been driven crazy by this washer and dryer, right? I'm like, I'm just saying, telling people how many hours I've spent on it. I spent 12 hours on this, 14 hours. Then we got new ones delivered that were broke, right? Like, drove me crazy. Why? Because time is fleeting. It's precious. Our frustrations rise up from that. My fears rise up from that. Your frustrations and fears rise up. But for us who know the end of the story, we know we have eternity in a place free of frustration, suffering, sin, and death. We'll be in the presence of the one who died for us, but then rose again. Where we have glorified bodies to enjoy Him forever. The best part of that is going to be my pain and my sin's not going to get in the way of me seeing Jesus. It's to take Him in forever. Nothing will break. If there's washers and dryers, they will work. No disease will come. Death will be a forgotten reality and all we will know is fullness of life. That's all we're going to know. Can you imagine? No suffering. No sin, no brokenness, no messiness, no of your own failures or others' failures, none of your own hurt you put on other people or hurt they put on you, none of that anymore, none. Fullness of life. Like, what does fullness of life even mean? I don't know. But I want to. I want to taste and see more of it now. So kids, if you trust in Jesus You don't have to be afraid because you will never die. Never die. You will live forever. Adults, if you trust in Jesus, would you take a deep breath right now and release your grip on the fears and frustration and clinging to the things of this life to bring you what they can never bring you? Just take a deep breath. I will live forever. I've got time. Be with Jesus forever. I've got time. Would you release your grip on the shame of wasted years and present failures? Just, just let them go. You've got time to make up for that. You wasted your first 70. Eternity's coming. It really is okay if Jesus is alive. 
You really can release it if the gospel is true. This isn't psychological games are playing, right? This isn't therapeutic deism, like feel good about yourself. This is the reality of the gospel. It goes this deep and this far and this wide into the smallest details and biggest tragedies of our life. And would we instead, clinging to fear, clinging to frustration, clinging to things in this life, clinging to shame, clinging to present failures, would we instead rejoice that our Savior is alive and reigning and we're going to be with Him forever? We will not see corruption, but instead we will live where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, namely the joy and pleasures of the presence of our Savior. All right, moving towards application, although I feel like I just did it. I'll do this anyways. Rejection, redemption, and rejoicing by God's word. Here's what Pastor David read this section. Had him read it because we're going to go through it a little bit quick here at the end. So I'm just going to let Paul's application of his sermon in verses 38 to 41 and the people's response be our application and have us consider our response. So what is his application in verses 38 to 41? Well, it's simple and profound given the 1,800 years of history he just covered. But he says, basically, forgiveness is available in Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is available in Jesus Christ. Freedom from sin and death that the law could ultimately never bring, that we could never do on our own, is available to them in Christ. That's the good news. The second part of his application is, but beware that you don't reject him again. And by again, he's again getting very personal. He's quoting Habakkuk 1.5, where Israel was headed towards certain destruction because of their rejection and unbelief. So Paul is saying... Seen your family history and God's faithfulness, seen the rejection of Jesus, seen that Jesus is alive now, and I'm just going to tell you, don't do what they used to do all the time. Right? Habakkuk 1.5 is one of them, but right, he could have gone anywhere. Like, open up the Old Testament, put your finger down, Israel's rejecting him, right? He said, don't be like them. Don't copy their unbelief. See Jesus. Come to Jesus. Receive forgiveness. Walk in new freedom from sin and new freedom from the fear of death. Give glory to God, the one who has been writing this story throughout all of history. And the way you give glory to God is stop trusting in yourselves and your crooked leaders and trust in the Savior God sent to forgive your sins. This is main application. That's, what before, that's what's before them and that's what's before us today. Will we trust Jesus? Will we be rooted in Him? Will His forgiveness be our hope and our joy? Will we let His forgiveness and the freedom we have in Him sink deep into our souls? Deep enough, meditate on it enough, think about the reality of it enough that it begins to untangle the knots of anxiety and anger and apathy that we can't figure out on our own. Why am I so angry? Why am I so apathetic? I want to feel more. Why am I filled with anxiety? Well, just let the gospel get down in there and begin to untangle that. See, Jesus, his death, his resurrection, walk out of sin, walk out of shame, walk in new resurrection power. Or reject him. So I'm going to try to figure it out on my own. Maintain power and control of my own life. Hopefully option one sounds way better at this point. 
And then in verses 42 to 52, after his application, and we shouldn't be surprised at this point, some of the people hear and believe and others reject him, which is just the story of Acts and the story of history and the story of Lakeville, the story of Prior Lake, the story of Shakopee and Farmington and, and India, right? It's the story of everywhere. Some people receive him, some people reject him. But there is a, a note of deep and sad irony in, in this and that some people believe and they gather the next Sunday to hear the word of the Lord. But sadly, the Jews fulfill the prophecy of Habakkuk 1.5. And we're supposed to see that in the story, I think. Luke's writing in a way that we would see God fulfills his prophecies. He fulfills his covenant, even in this recent rejection of the Jews. They're filled with jealousy They reject Jesus again and they run Paul and Barnabas out of town by inciting the powerful women and men of the city against them. But Pastor David read it perfectly with much joy. We see the good news of Jesus going to the Gentiles just as was prophesied in Isaiah 49, which is quoted in verse 47. It is too small, too light a thing that Jesus should be a light to the Jews only but you will bring my gospel, my salvation to the nations like Lakeville, (laughs) Minnesota, where we are today. In other words, the point of this whole thing is that the story of history is one that culminates in the perfect life, death, resurrection, ascension, reign, and soon-to-come return of King Jesus. And this king will ransom a people from all nations. He will have his people One group responds with rejection. It says they prove themselves unworthy of eternal life because they're self-sufficient. They won't believe. They won't trust. The other group, as many as God had appointed to believe, see Jesus, his salvation, see freedom in him, and respond with rejoicing a new abundant life that will last forever. I love the phrase, as many as were appointed to believe. That's why we do evangelism. That's why we talk to our neighbors. The sovereignty of God is why we do it. We go, God, you've got them out there. You've appointed some to believe. I'm just going to tell everybody about it, and we're just going to see what you're going to do. <laughs> They're out there. You've appointed them, and I'm going to go get them as a good fisher of men with this gospel story that you've given me. So these people leave rejoicing. This is the last word of this story. They leave rejoicing in and glorifying the word of the Lord. They leave rejoicing and filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what I want to be our last word. So so do you see it? They rejoice, they're filled, they go, the word spreads throughout the region. This is how it always works. This is Christianity, right? God's word, God's promises come to a people. They trust in Jesus. They see themselves in the story of redemption. They rejoice in the story of redemption. And then what do they do when they see how good it is? They tell other people. They they tell other people. The gospel will spread in our south neighborhoods and to the nations as we delight in this beautiful story of redemption and invite others in to see it with us because we see ourselves in the story. God has been working and he grabbed me. I was appointed and he saved me and I trust him and boy do I want you in here with me. Let's pray. So, Father, we're going to come to the, the table now. 
And I pray that as we come, Lord, if there are those in this room who haven't yet trusted in Jesus, that this would be the moment that they would trust Him, find freedom in Him, forgiveness in Him, find eternal life in Him. For those of us here who have trusted in Jesus, Lord, would this be a moment of sweet renewal, sweet delight, sweet remembrance of your death, your resurrection, how you keep your promises to us in Jesus, how we can live free of fear and shame and all sorts of other sinful tendencies that we have. So Lord, come now in this moment as we've heard this word and as we come now to your table and work among your people by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.